Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. If you are a regular listener to this podcast and or a reader of my writing, then you know that I recently moved my family out of the failed blue state of California in search of greater freedom and prosperity in the great red state of Texas. It's no secret that under Democrat one-party rule in California, a state that should be paradise is rapidly becoming a third-world cesspool, I'm sorry to say. The state has been hemorrhaging residents for years now, myself and my family included, and the failed governor of that failed state, Gavin Newsom, could very well become the Democrat Party's nominee for the presidency in 2024, because we all know it's not going to be Joe Biden. If Newsom becomes president, you can bet your last dollar, and before it's over with, you may have only one dollar, that he will take this entire nation down the same path that he took California, because the decline of that state, its collapse, just like the steep decline of this country under the Biden administration, was and is intentional. We are talking about a political party that finds the slogan, Make America Great Again, repugnant. Because it's a party that never did think America was great, and that doesn't want it to be great. Because it's a party run by globalist elites like Gavin Newsom, who reject patriotism, who reject nationalism, who reject the idea of borders and national security, who despise the middle class, who despise the Constitution, who despise our freedoms and prosperity, except when it comes to their own freedom and prosperity, which they certainly intend to preserve while the commoners wallow in socialist misery. As California goes, so goes the nation. And by sheer coincidence, my guest today at The Right Take is the author of a book called As California Goes. And I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation today because I'm honored and excited to have celebrated conservative talk radio host, Larry Elder. We're going to talk about his book, why it's called As California Goes, and as many other topics as I can squeeze into our short talk. So stay tuned and don't don't miss this conversation. And please take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already so that you can keep up with the conversations we're having here with important thinkers, writers, pundits, and storytellers. And if you like what you hear, a positive review would be really appreciated. Thank you, and don't touch that dial. I'll be right back with my guest after this awesome guitar and drum-heavy musical interlude. My guest today at Right Take is a man who needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. He's one of the best-known media figures in America today, the Sage from South Central. His flagship daily radio program, The Larry Elder Show, was heard every weekday in all 50 states. The Larry Elder Show now can be heard and seen at the Epoch Times Online. He's also an award-winning documentary filmmaker and a New York Times best-selling author of a number of books. But he has a brand new one called As California Goes, My Mission to Rescue the Golden State and Save the Nation. I have read it and recommend it highly. We're going to talk about that today. He's just a fascinating, multifaceted, accomplished guy. Larry Elder, welcome to the Right Take Podcast. Mark, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for not calling me the black face of white supremacy. 
<laughs> well, well, we'll get to that. Uh, it, well, I'm, thanks for taking the time. You know, we love you at the David Horwitz Freedom Center. You've been a longtime friend of the center, so I've been looking forward to having you on. Uh, I want to get to your latest book in a moment, uh, but first I want to talk about an op-ed that you recently wrote. The Super Bowl is coming up this weekend, and again, I think for the fourth straight Super Bowl, the so-called Black National Anthem will be played in addition to our traditional national anthem. You wrote an op-ed about that, and for listeners who didn't get a chance to read it, could you share with them your take on the playing of a Black National Anthem? Well, I think it's pretty pointless. We're all Americans. Super Bowl is one of these events where where people can come together uh, without politics uh, and uh, have a good time. And so the NFL is, however, injecting politics by basically suggesting that black people are still oppressed and victims, and we need to have our own separate national anthem played. Otherwise, we're somehow not being treated fairly. I find it pretty insulting. There is one national anthem. It is the national anthem. And that's the only one that ought to be sung there. This is the fourth year, as you pointed out, that they're doing this. And I don't know why. What I said, what I suggested in my article, Mark, is what would happen if some player took a knee? Uh, <laughs> if it were a white player, he'd immediately be both the most hated player uh, in the NFL and the one whose jersey would be the best-selling one. Same thing if a black player did it. Ideally, uh, a black and white player ought to take a knee at the same time uh, in solidarity uh, with the country to celebrate the national anthem, the only national anthem anybody ought to be celebrating uh, during the Super Bowl. Uh, well, let's move on to your new book. Your new book is called As California Goes, from that expression, uh, As California Goes, So Goes the Nation. A couple of months ago, I, like hundreds of thousands of other Californians in recent years, fled the state for higher ground. I moved my family to Texas. I've had many other friends move to everywhere from Texas to Utah to Idaho to Florida to Tennessee. Larry, what has gone wrong with California in your view, and can it be saved? Well, welcome to the mass exodus, Mark. You are one of about a million former Californians who've left in the last three years. Uh, and the primary reason that people are leaving uh, is because of the cost of living. The average price of a home in California is literally double the average price of a home in the rest of the country. Other reasons people are leaving because of high taxes. We have the highest state income tax in the country. We have very high sales taxes. Um, and it's causing a lot of people, high-end people, to leave. And they take their tax dollars with them, which also creates a kind of death spiral in California because the number one source of revenue is the California state income. And about 1% of all Californian income tax filers uh, account for half of the uh, of California income, state income revenue, which means if a high-end person like, like you or like Ben Shapiro or like uh, Dave Rubin or like Mark uh, uh, Elon Musk, all of whom recently left, they're taking their tax dollars with them. And while there is an influx of people, as I mentioned, there's a net loss of one million people. And the people who are moving in California make less money than the people who are leaving California, which means the tax revenues from the new entrants is going to be a lot lower than the tax revenues from people who are leaving. Also, another, another reason people are leaving is because California, while it has 13 percent or so of the nation's population, has literally half of the nation's homelessness. Our schools are ranked near the bottom, even though we're spending more money K through 12 than ever before. You add it all up. Uh, and while this state is a beautiful state, it's got great topography. Uh, it's just stunningly beautiful. The politics are awful. Democrats have dominated this state for decades. There is a supermajority of Democrats in the state Senate. 
a supermajority of Democrats in the state assembly, and there hasn't been a, uh, a uh, Republican elected na- uh, statewide in California in over 20 years. That's why a lot of people are fed up and they're leaving. Yes. Uh, and speaking of California Democrats, let's talk about Gavin Newsom for a moment. In your book, you talk about throwing your hat in the ring to replace Gavin Newsom. Mark, Mark, Mark do we have to? <laughs> Yes. I said, Mark, do we have, do we have to? Do we have to? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a difficult subject to bring up. Uh, there was a there was a recall effort. In fact, I think it was about the sixth or seventh recall effort directed at Gavin Newsom. So he's not very popular. Uh, but you you threw your hat in the ring to replace him when one of those recall efforts got underway. But that wasn't your idea. Initially, you were very reluctant. But our mutual friend Jenny Sand managed to talk you into that. Can you talk a little bit about your process of deciding to enter the gubernatorial race? Then? Also, our mutual friend Dennis Prager also was heavily uh, lobbying me to, to, to run. Uh, no, I, I've never run for anything before. I ran for third grade class president. And Mark, before you asked me, yes, I won that race. So I'm batting 500. <laughs> um, and I just did it because I felt that Gavin Newsom is a, a direct menace to the state. Uh, and... This was a recall election. For those who weren't following it, it's a two-step process. On the ballot, first of all, voters were asked, do you want Gavin Newsom recall? And if 50% plus one said yes, the second part of the ballot is, whom do you want to replace him? Whoever got the most votes for replacement would have won, no matter how many votes this person got, as long as it was more than one uh, compared to the second person. So conceivably, I could have gotten elected with as little as 25% of all the votes cast. So I thought maybe if the ball carried the right, the right way, uh, I could sneak in there and get elected in a state where Republicans are outnumbered three to one. And unfortunately, the first part of the ballot did not succeed. Uh, had, had it succeeded, though, I would have become governor of California, and you'd be talking to me from Sacramento because there were 46 replacement candidates. I got 3.5 million votes, almost more than all the others combined. I got in with just eight weeks uh, left because I was still uncertain whether I wanted to get in. And I raised $27 million in eight eight weeks, more than the other 45 uh, candidates on the replacement side combined. California has 58 counties. I carried 57 of 58. The only one I didn't carry was San Francisco, and I lost that by by a whopping 149 votes. Um, The state party did not support me. State GOP party did not support me. The federal GOP party did not support me. In fact, Kevin McCarthy told the dozen or so House Republicans uh, to back a guy named Kevin Faulkner, the two-term mayor of San Diego. I carry San Diego County by 30 points. When it was obvious that the grassroots wanted me, I thought at least I'd get verbal support from people like uh, Kevin McCarthy, if not financial support. I got neither. There are only two House members Republican side who openly endorsed me, uh, Michelle Steele uh, and uh, Doug Lamalfa from the Sacramento area. Daryl Issa allowed me to take pictures with him and said some positive things, but he never officially endorsed me. So against all of those odds, I thought I did uh, tremendously well for somebody who never run for office before. And um, the the way they won is I got outspent almost 10 to 1 for a while. The first part of the ballot, do you want Gavin Newsom recalled, was literally within the margin of error mark. And then out came the dogs. Joe Biden flew in and said, Larry Elder is the closest thing to a Donald Trump clone as I've ever seen. I didn't know whether I should be insulted or flattered. Obama cut a commercial. Kamala Harris cut a commercial. Elizabeth Warren cut a commercial. Bernie Sanders. And they all said the same thing. They did not say 
Gavin Newsom did right by California by shutting down the state because of COVID in a more severe way than any of the other 49 governors. They didn't say Gavin Newsom is doing a great job on crime. Crime is up in most categories over uh, 20, since 2019. He didn't say Gavin Newsom is doing a great job on cost of living. Uh, they didn't say Gavin Newsom is doing a great job on, on fire management or on water conservation. They just said, and I'm quoting, stop the Republican takeover. I, at, at that point in my career, Mark, I had taken one picture of Donald Trump with my in my life, uh, and it was a picture of two of us standing side by side, uh, holding our thumbs up. And they showed that picture over and over and over again, even though Donald Trump never officially endorsed me. His team reached out, but I said, no, I want to make this California-centric because what they're going to do is turn this into a referendum on you and on Republicans. They did it anyway. Uh, and that's what they said over and over and over again, stop Republican takeover, and it worked. Well, when the recall didn't work for you because you were robbed, what was it about that process or what did you take away from that experience that then sparked the desire in you to, to run for president? Well, it just underscored the extent to which uh, they, meaning Democrats, the media, the left, will, will do to uh, prevent anybody uh, from competing with them for power. For example, in my book, I write about the fact that my candidacy was almost strangled in the grave, in the, in the cradle, because the Secretary of State said I was not eligible to run, even though I had done all the things you're supposed to do, turned in the petitions, you had to turn in five uh, years of income tax returns, you had to turn in uh, two sets, two identical sets. Uh, why? Because the uh, Democrats passed a law signed by Gavin Newsom. By the way, it wasn't even signed by the outgoing governor, uh, Jerry Brown, because he thought it was unconstitutional. And this was before somebody had stolen Donald Trump's returns and made them public. Uh, they wanted Donald Trump's returns made public, so they passed a law that said, if you're running for president or, or governor in California, you must turn over five years of taxes. Again, I thought it was unconstitutional, and I also didn't think it applied to a recall election, but I did it anyway. I turned over all five years' worth of returns, about 500 pages, again, in sets of two. So the uh, ballot uh, names come out. My name isn't on it. And the Secretary of State said Larry Elder did not comply because there were seven pages missing from the second set he turned in. Now, those seven pages were in the first set. And by the way, I have no idea what happened to those seven pages, why they were missing. But, but, but no matter, they were in the first set. All you had to do was look at the first set and find the seven pages and put them in the second set. But the Secretary of State chose not to do that. So we filed a lawsuit claiming, A, the law didn't apply to a recall. B, the Secretary of State had the power to to comply when there was a minor error and that she failed to do so, uh, and that by not, by not putting me on the ballot, you would, you would be depriving the voters of California from ha having their choice. So the uh, hearing was was uh, on YouTube uh, because of COVID. Uh, the uh, judge who was assigned to the case was a Democrat, went to UC Berkeley, and was up for an appellate judgeship by Gavin Newsom. Not good. However, in just 15 minutes, she ruled in our favor, and she said that, A, the law, uh, she doesn't believe even, even applies to a recall, which is what we argued, and secondly, elders substantially complied, and the Secretary of State had the ability and the power uh, to correct a minor error. So I got put back on the ballot. But that's what these people do. And when I ran for president, pretty much the same thing happened to me again. In order to qualify more for that first debate, you had to be at least at 1% or better in the polls, which is understandable. You don't want every everybody running just because they want to run. You have to be at least credible. So I had three polls where I was at 1% or better. 
and I turn them in by the deadline. I get a phone call from Ronna McDaniel, who's now under fire. And she said, I'm sorry, one of the polls you turned in cannot be used. I said, which one? She said, the Rasmussen poll. I said, why? She said, quote, it's affiliated with Donald Trump. Rasmussen put out a statement after that on Twitter and said, we're not affiliated with Donald Trump. There's no reason why Larry Elder can't use us as one of the three needed to show he's at 1% or better in the polls. So then we submitted, Mark, a fourth one. And Ronald McDaniel said, well, you submitted it too late, which is true, because I didn't realize I needed to submit a fourth one. So uh, we told them, if you don't allow me to debate in Milwaukee, and make the, and reverse that decision by two o'clock. I'm in California, but I flew to Milwaukee anyway, even though uh, this cloud was hanging over my head. I told them if they did not change their mind by two o'clock that day of the debate, I was going to file a complaint with the Federal Elections Commission, arguing uh, that by not allowing the debate criteria to be fairly applied to Elder, you've essentially given uh, two hours of free airtime to the eight people who qualified, and the value of that airtime for Fox News would have been a hundred million dollars. My lawyer is a former head of the FEC, and he filed the complaint. Uh, and two o'clock came and went, and the RNC didn't blink. So right now, as we speak, hopefully the FEC is adjudicating that complaint. <laughs> but we'll see. Well, what a nightmare! I can't even fathom uh, what a roller coaster ride it must be to run for president. What does that feel like to suddenly find yourself, oh, I'm running for president now? Well, it's um, it's almost out of body. Again, I never thought I'd run for anything, let alone governor, let alone president. Uh, but so many people after the governor's race was over, my girlfriend and I went to Key West to chill out. I, I've always been fascinated by uh, by Ernest Hemingway, and I wanted to see where he wrote all his stuff. I know you're a writer, too. And uh, I gained about 10 pounds because I'd go to a restaurant and someone would say, Larry Elder, I, I, I supported you. I sent money, even though I don't live in California. Drinks are on me. Your dinner's on me. And one of my favorite uh, expressions is, it's on me. So I sat there and I and I gained a lot of weight. And a bunch of people said, why don't you run for president? And frankly, people said you would have a better chance of winning the presidency than winning in California, where a Republican, as I mentioned, has not won statewide since 2003. The more I thought about it, Mark, the more I thought that I would do it. Not because I thought that I would displace Donald Trump. In fact, I ran as an America first guy, and I said very positive things about him. But I thought there were some issues that our party and the country are not talking about that are vital. And if I could just raise awareness of those issues, I would feel I've given a service to my country. Most notably, I think the number one problem in America, domestic problem in America, by far, is what I call the epidemic of fatherlessness. Today, 40% of all American kids enter the world without a father in the home married to the mother, up from around 8% back in 19, 1950 or 55. Today, 70% of black kids enter the world without a father in the home married to the mother, up from 25% back in 1965. Now, 25% of white kids do. And the numbers are clear. If you're raised without a father, you're five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. What's happened? In the mid-60s, Lyndon Johnson, I believe with the best of intentions, launched what he called the War on Poverty, and since then we've incentivized women to marry the government and incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility, and nobody but nobody's talking about it. Our side does not talk about it for fear of being accused of being uh, being racist or, or dissing the heroic job single uh, mothers are doing. Uh, their side doesn't talk about it because they created the problem. So nobody but nobody is talking about this. And so in my speeches in Iowa and in New Hampshire and in Nevada, I always raise this issue. 
Uh, and indeed, uh, Vivek, at one of the debates, began talking about it. He hadn't done it before. And when I had my meeting with Donald Trump a couple of months ago in Mar-a-Lago and told him I was dropping out and going to endorse him, I asked him would he please begin talking more about this issue. And to his credit, that very day, he tweeted something about it. The other big issue is this. I know our party, Mark, supports school choice, but I don't think that they've raised awareness to how bad things are, particularly in urban America, where just to pick a couple of examples, in Baltimore, there were 13 public high schools, I kid you not, all located in the inner city where zero percent of the kids can do math at grade level. Zero. Uh, Chicago, there are 53 government schools in Chicago. Zero percent of the kids can do math at grade level. Nationwide, 85 percent of black eighth graders, these are 13-year-old kids, can neither read nor do math at grade level. This is an absolute catastrophe, uh, and school choice has, has proven to improve test scores, uh, improve dropout rates, and improve parental satisfaction, yet the Democratic Party opposes school choice, even as their elite, whether it's Gavin Newsom or Barack Obama or Joe Biden, put their own kids in private schools. It is an absolute outrage. The other big issue is this. I know our party is a party uh, of, of MLK's vision of content of character over color of skin, but I don't think that our party fights back hard enough as Democrats play the race card time and time and time again. For example, Joe Biden at Howard University a few months ago said the number one threat to the homeland was white supremacy. Are you kidding me? There were 20,000 homicide victims last year. About 25 people were killed by political extremists. Um, if you want to play that game, most homicide is same race homicide. Most whites were killed are killed by other whites. Most blacks who are killed are killed by other blacks. However, every year, out of all the 20,000 or so homicides in recent years, there are about 750 interracial black-white homicides. 500 whites killed by blacks, even though we're about 13% of the population. 250 blacks killed by whites, even though whites are 60% of the population. Now, if Donald Trump went to a conservative university and said the number one threat to the homeland is black supremacy, you and I, Mark, would denounce him as a race-hustling demagogue and should. But Biden does it and gets away with it. It's an absolute outrage that we don't fight back against this narrative, which is designed to stir up anger uh, and to get the, the uh, monolithic black vote and to get uh, Hispanic voters to vote in mass for the Democratic Party. It is a lie that America remains systemically racist. The big issue is the quality of education that people are not getting K through 12, as I said earlier. All well said. And you actually anticipated about three questions of mine. I was going to bring up issues of, uh, uh, you know, is this a systemically racist country uh, and education? And I'm glad you brought up the issue of fatherlessness and that you were focused on that scourge because it's, it's a concern of mine, too. And as you said, nobody's talking about it. Uh, there, there are still no candidates really talking about it and its impact on the country. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, let, let me ask you, you know, when you put yourself out there. And, 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 Mark, and Mark, a, a little bit more about this, a little bit more about this. And I told this to, to uh, former President Trump and he was shocked. I said a black male aged 10 to 43 is 13 times more likely to be murdered than a white male same demo. He said, what's your source for that? I said, Center for, Centers for Disease Control. Have you heard of them? The number one cause of preventable death for a white teenager, male teenager, 19 and under, is accidents, like car accidents or drownings or drug overdoses. The number one cause of preventable death for a white, uh, for a black teenager, 19 and under, is homicide, almost always at the hands of another young black male. Blacks account for 60% of the shootings, 60% of the robberies, 
and nearly 60% of the, of the homicides in America. Now, unless you're prepared to say black people are just genetically inclined to commit more crime, if it isn't the epidemic of fatherlessness, please tell me what it is. And when I propose that to liberals, they have no answer. What do you think we can do to ease racial tensions in this country, which are obviously very high? Because, as you noted, we have a, at least we have one political party that condemns America as a white supremacist or systemically racist nation. How can we pull back from that? Uh, the answer is real simple. Tell the truth. And I say this particularly to my white friends who fear that when they defend themselves against these bogus charges, they're going to be accused of being a systemic racist. Tell the truth. In 1964, shortly after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, uh, Martin Luther King was interviewed by British television. And he said, the changes in America in the last couple of years have surprised me. Why, if things continue to progress this way, we could have a black president in about 40 years. Almost on cue, Barack Obama was elected in 2008. He didn't say in 40 years' time we'll have black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. There have been several, and there are several. He didn't say they're going to be black billionaires, and there are several. He didn't say they're going to be black governors and senators, and there are. He didn't say the mayors of the three biggest cities in America, uh, New York, L.A., Chicago, would be black, and they are. He didn't say the president of the American Medical Association, arguably the most uh, powerful and prestigious a trade association of, of doctors would be black. There have been, I think, two presidents who've been black. He didn't say the president of the American Bar Association, uh, the most powerful trade association of lawyers, would be black. We've had, I think, two black presidents. He didn't say they're going to be black presidents of Ivy League schools. I went to Brown, and a few years ago, the president of Brown was a black female. He said president, meaning once America has elected a black president, we can say to the fullest extent that it's reasonable that people are evaluating you based on content of character rather than color of skin. In 2007, when Barack Obama was running against Hillary on the Democratic side for the nomination and John McCain was running against Mitt Romney on the Republican side for the nomination, Gallup did a poll to find out who has the biggest handicap. 42% of Americans said they would not vote for somebody uh, who was as old as John McCain. John McCain at the time was 72 years old, and then we perceived that to be old. 24% said they would not vote for a Mormon, referring to Mitt Romney. 11% said they would not vote for a female, referring to Hillary. 5% said they would not vote for a black person, referring to Barack Obama. So out of these politicians, Barack Obama had a lower hurdle than they did. Bottom line is, if you are prepared, if you are uh, able, if you are accomplished, there's nothing that can hold you back, no matter your race, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your gender. It is a lie to think otherwise. In 1997, Time Magazine and CNN teamed up together. It was on the cover story of Time Magazine, and they asked black teens and white teens whether racism was a major problem in America, and both said yes. But then they did something very different. They asked the black teens, again, this is 1997, so this is 26 years ago, 27 years ago, uh, 1997, is racism a big problem, a small problem, or no problem in your own daily life? 89% of black teens said racism was a small problem or no problem in my own daily life. In fact, twice as many black teens uh, compared to white teens said, quote, failure to take advantage of available opportunities is a bigger problem than racism, end of quote. And that, again, that was 27 years ago. So we have to knock it off. Knock it off. You're not helping anybody by telling them if you work hard, put in the time and the energy, somehow uh, somebody's going to hold you back. You're not doing anybody a, a, a favor. And these kinds of numbers need to be told to people. And all, speaking of all this talk about systemic racism and white supremacy, when you put yourself out there as a political candidate, 
I'm sure that you knew as a prominent black conservative that you were going to draw some serious flack. But did you ever think in your wildest dreams, in your entire lifetime for that matter, did you ever think that you would end up being smeared as the black face of white supremacy? Well, uh, as people ask me that question, I said, I've been called worse by better. Uh, you know, I, I, of course I expected that. I, I didn't expect it to be in a, in a headline in the LA Times. The headline was Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy. Subheadline, you've been warned. I've been doing commentary on radio and or TV for almost 35, 40 years. And I take all comers. I pride myself on taking calls from people who are antagonistic because I think your ideas can be best tested uh, under fire. And I've been called all sorts of names. Uh, and um, so it did not surprise me. The woman in question who called me that, uh, her name is Erica D. Smith. Uh, and uh, not too surprisingly, when my campaign was over and I went back to radio and I invited her on my show to explain to me what makes me the, the black face of white supremacy, she declined to come on. And that's pretty much similar. I've had, um, I've invited Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Louis Farrakhan, uh, and Maxine Waters, an average of 50 times a piece, and uh, neither of them will come on my show. They don't want to hear what I have to say. Their stock and trade is America remains systemically racist. And e Exhibit A uh, is the alleged um, uh, police brutality. Now, I've ne never never said that uh, the police are 100% angels any more than talk show hosts are 100% angels or doctors or anybody else. However, it is a lie that the police are engaging in systemic racism against black people. There is a a Harvard economist named Roland Fryer, who's black. And like me, he's from the inner city. And because of the high profile shootings of black people, whether it's uh, Michael Brown or Laquan McDonald in Chicago or Freddie Gray in Baltimore, he assumed that the police were in fact using uh, deadly force against blacks disproportionately because they were black. So he did a study and he said, the findings were the most shocking in my professional career. Not only were the police not killing blacks just because they were black, they were more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black person uh, than, a, than a white person. Uh, and that was published front page uh, in July of 2016. Also, USA Today had a, a very long piece about the decades-long research showing that the police, if anything, are more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than a white suspect. Uh, the police kill more whites every year than blacks, twice as many whites than blacks. They kill more unarmed whites every year than blacks. Most people can never name an unarmed white person because the police, uh, when this happens, the media doesn't care. CNN is not going to fly in. MSNBC is not going to fly in when it's a white person uh, who's unarmed, who's killed. But if it's a black person, it's a whole different deal. Giving you the false impression that happens a lot. There's a uh, website called policemag.com, Mark where um, people who are self-described as very liberal, and I dare say that of the, the millions of people that rioted or protested uh, in May 2020 over the death of uh, George Floyd, I dare say that most of the people would probably self-describe as very liberal. They asked people who self-described as very liberal, how many unarmed black men did the police kill in 2019? 50% of the self-described very liberal people thought the police killed 1,000 unarmed black men uh, in 2019. Uh, and 8% thought they killed 10,000. What you ask, do the self-described just liberal people think? Well, 39% of self-described liberals thought the police killed 1,000 unarmed black men in 2019, and 5% thought they killed 10,000. The answer, according to the Washington Post database, was 12. That's the gap between what people think is going on versus what is really going on, and you have to attribute that to the media, uh, to their obsession with uh, with race, 
uh, to Democrats like like uh, like Joe Biden, giving you the false impression that America is still being bedeviled by systemic racism. It is a lie, and it divides the country, and they do it for power. You finally had to uh, end your bid for the White House late last October. That must have been a wrenching decision to make. Well, it was, Mark. When you consider all the energy that my team and I expended uh, going to small towns in Iowa, going to the Iowa State Fair, going to the football game between uh, the Iowa State football game, having all these meetings. Iowa has 99 counties. California has 58 counties. (laughs) I was 99. And if you're a serious candidate, they expect you to go to all 99. I didn't end up going to all 99, but I would have had I stayed in the, into the race. And all the people that I met, all the speeches that I gave, all the interviews that I gave, all the fundraising calls that I engaged in, it is a lot of work. You don't get any sleep uh, and you're sometimes don't even know where you are. So it was a big expenditure of time, energy, effort, a big financial uh, sacrifice and a career sacrifice because I put my radio career on hold when I ran for governor and I put my TV career on hold when I ran for uh, for president with no guarantee, by the way, that you get him back. So uh, for all those reasons, it was uh, uh, a sad uh, time to, to, to pack it in, although I would not have changed one minute of it. It was exhilarating. And when I decided to run, or when I was thinking about running, I asked Rick Santorum, who ran for president twice, um, whether he would have done it again. He said in a heartbeat. I asked Steve Forbes, who also ran twice, if he would have done it again. And he said he would have done it in a heartbeat. So that's exactly how I feel. Uh, It was a great honor to be taken seriously, uh, to get standing ovations when I spoke at town halls in Iowa and in New Hampshire, uh, and to um, hear what people had to say and hear their problems and hear their concerns. It made me, I think, a better citizen. Uh, it made me a better commentator. Uh, and uh, it made me appreciate the country even more. Fantastic. Do you think that uh, you would consider running again? <laughs> well, I, I ran for third grade class president and I won. I ran for governor and I lost. I ran for president and I lost. So that's a three thirty three batting average. Uh, if I were a baseball player, I'd be in the Hall of Fame. So I, I think I've given it the office. I, I don't think I'm going to do it again. I was approached to run uh, for Senate in California. The leading Republican is Steve Garvey. Uh, and I think that uh, I might have done done reasonably well. But as I said, the, the battlefield is pretty daunting. The last uh, Republican governor was, was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And consider this. He became governor because of a recall election. But that was 2003. Since then, there are now 5% more registered Democrats. There are 33% fewer registered Republicans, and there are 50% more registered independents. And even the New York Times said independents in California vote Democrat. So it's just almost almost impossible to win statewide unless you have massive name recognition and a boatload of money. Uh, and uh, in the case of Steve Garvey, he's got name recognition, but so far he's raised only $600,000 as opposed to $30 million that, uh, that Adam Schiff has raised. I think Katie Porter has raised about $20 million. So uh, I, I hope he does well. Right now in the polls, he's not doing too badly for somebody who's only raised that small amount of money, but it's going to be hard for him to finish in the top two, which is what you have to do in California. We have what's called a jungle primary. So the first two finishers square off against each other. And in a statewide race, it is not uncommon for the ter- first two finishers to be Democrats. With all the craziness that is going on in the country politically and culturally right now, 
what is your biggest concern? Well, we've talked about a couple of your concerns like fatherlessness and education. Do you have another one? Is there another big concern you have about the state of the union? Like, for example, the economy or immigration or wokeness. Uh, is, is there another one you could point to as a serious issue facing us? And what can we do about that? We have all sorts of very serious issues. But whenever I get depressed about that, I'm reminded of, of that what that great philosopher uh, Barbara Bush once said, the one married to the first uh, uh, George Bush. She said, what happens in your house is far more important than what happens in the White House. So I try to keep that in perspective. What you do every day, how you treat people every day, uh, if you're a parent, how you raise your kids every day, if you're a husband or uh, a, uh, you have a significant other, how you treat uh, your spouse or your significant others, that will have a greater impact on the quality of your day-to-day life than anything else. That said, our two-tier judicial system, where if you're a Republican like uh, Donald Trump, you're going to be persecuted. Uh, this uh, election interference of people like Mark Zuckerberg, where he spent $419.5 million uh, to get out Democrat vote in Democrat areas, in my opinion, was an example of election interference. He got away with it. The 51 former senior intelligence officials who signed that letter claiming the Hunter Biden laptop story had all the hallmarks of Russian uh, disinformation. When studies showed they had people known about the laptop story, which was suppressed by Twitter and Facebook, uh, Eighteen uh, percent of people in seven swing states would have voted uh, for Donald Trump, uh, thereby guaranteeing that he would have won the election. All this wokeness, uh, the, and it's not just uh, in academia, which is bad. Only about three percent of Ivy League, Ivy League professors self-describe as conservative or somewhat conservative, meaning the ones who are conservative might even be as little as one percent. Uh, the media, only about three percent of journalists uh, self-describe as registered Republicans. Uh, Hollywood, 90 percent of the of the political contributions go to Democrats or Democrat causes. 90 percent of the uh, of the contributions for political parties and causes from Ivy League professors also go to the go to the left. So you have a domination of big tech, academia, Hollywood and media, all of whom, in my opinion, undermine the values that made America great. So we're in a we're in a, 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 a major battle in America, I think, for the soul of America and for the future of our republic. Uh, so apart from that, not a whole lot keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what's your take on the upcoming presidential election? I know you're an optimistic guy. Uh, if you factor in the widespread voter fraud that Democrats will likely engage in, are you confident that uh, Trump can take Biden or whomever the nominee for the Democrats will be? No, I, no I'm not confident of it at all. Uh, look, we have this ridiculous, uh, endless election where people are voting weeks before the election day. And often things have happened uh, that you would think an informed voter would want to know about. For example, uh, when I got into the race, shortly thereafter, already they were voting. And there wasn't even a, a debate. I tried to get Gavin Newsom to debate me. But there are, there are states where people have already voted. And then the candidates have a debate. Uh, my goodness, how are you going to vote before you even heard the debates? We ought to get back to single-day voting, in-person, voter ID, and if you have a legitimate excuse to, to do mail-in balloting, uh, you, will, you will be a minority to do so. And only under those circumstances should you do so. Most of the countries in Europe no longer allow mail-in balloting because of the potential for fraud. There was a commission uh, that was uh, uh, run by, uh, co-chaired by Jimmy Carter and James Baker, uh, the former Secretary of State. And they said that mail-in balloting had the highest potential for voter fraud. They didn't oppose it, but they said there should be all sorts of measures to make it more secure, measures which in many states are not being followed. 
Uh, COVID was used as an excuse to change uh, regulations in uh, in Pennsylvania, I believe illegally. Uh, uh, Wisconsin, I believe illegally. And Michigan, I believe illegally. Uh, each state was very close and had the shenanigans not taken place, in my opinion, uh, Trump would have carried those states as well. There were just 40,000 votes in three different states. That was a difference between Trump winning and losing. And so they're going to try everything because they believe that Donald Trump is the very personification of Adolf Hitler. And if you believe that he's, that he's a Hitler, a tyrant, a dictator, you can pretty much justify almost anything. And so that's what they're going to do. And already I'm seeing a bunch of articles rehabilitating the image of, of Kamala Harris, because I assure you, if Joe Biden cannot fog up a mirror, it's going to be Kamala Harris. Uh, if he can, it's going to be Joe Biden. But, but she was chosen because she's a black female. She's still a black female. She wants to be president. And remember, she's never lost an election. She ran for DA in San Francisco and won. She ran for attorney general in California and won. She ran for re-election and won. She ran for U.S. senator in California and won. She ran on the ticket with Joe Biden and won. She did run for president, but she dropped out before the first contest in 2020. So she is undefeated and she wants to be president. So if Joe Biden cannot make it, she's next person up. The only way that doesn't happen is if she says, you know, I'm so incompetent, I'll step aside. And then her successor has got to be somebody like Michelle Obama. And there's nothing that Michelle Obama has ever said to me that suggests she has the desire or the temperament uh, to be a politician. She hated being first lady. She whined about it all the time. She felt that her husband was was untreated, was treated unfairly by the racist media. She wants nothing to do with this game. So they are stuck with Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a terrifying thought. And I, and I also would add, Mark, that I, that I believe every every single day, every single day, Joe Biden gets worse. Uh, he forgets where he is. Uh, he, can, he can hardly walk. So I'm not sure he will make it to November 2024. But as I said, if he does not, Kamala Harris will be the party nominee. And she is even, by some polls, um, less popular than he is. So uh, 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 Gavin, uh, uh, um, Joe Biden is down on the economy. He's underwater on gas prices. He's underwater on foreign policy. He's underwater certainly on the borders. He's underwater on the economy. So if we cannot beat this guy this year, when can we win? Larry, your thoughts on these issues are always so vital and uh, interesting, and you're such a great speaker. What is the best way for people to listen to you and to keep up with what you're doing? Well, I'm going to start a new podcast in the next few weeks. I would urge people to just stay in touch with me on social media. I'm very active on uh, on Twitter. Uh, now it's called X. My handle is at Larry Elder. I'm active on Facebook. I'm active on True Social. And I even am active on uh, on Threads, which is one that was set up by Facebook. Uh, I'm also very active on Instagram. So just follow me on social media, and I will have some announcements to make. In the meantime, if you want a free copy of my book, As Goes California, I'm co-founder, Mark, of a digital patriotic bank that, that believes in your values that will not cancel you because of your political views. It's called Old Glory Bank. OldGloryBank.com is the website. So open an account at OldGloryBank.com, uh, and it'll take you about eight minutes to open an account. And when you get your, your debit card in the mail, activate it, and you'll get a free copy of As Goes California. It's about a $25 value. It won't cost you anything to open up an account, eight minutes, as I mentioned. It won't cost you anything to activate your debit card. And once you do that, you'll get a free copy of As Goes California. Well, well I encourage people to take advantage of that because I've read the book, as I mentioned before. And it's as much of a page turner as uh, people would expect from you. 
Um, Larry Elder, thank you for taking the time to come on the right take. Please keep up the good fight, sir. Mark, it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much. God bless. God bless you. And listeners, thank you for joining us here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.